Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Book of Hebrews. Well, if you remember in our last message, we actually broke into some new territory and were abruptly confronted with what I would call one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. And that is this passage right here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. I mean, you read that, honestly, this is chilling. This is one of those passages, as I mentioned before, that the first time you're acquainted with it, you just don't run past it. it you, you stop. You're dead in your tracks. And this hits you hard, the reality of what's being conveyed here, the reality, the weight of sin. It all of a sudden, something, it begins to resonate in your heart. It's a very, very powerful thing. Well, today we are going to continue to remove layers of understanding in this passage because we want to ensure that we are extrapolating exactly what the writer intended for us to extrapolate and making sure that we don't get heavy in a way that we're not supposed to. In other words, we start interpreting things that are not there. We want to take exactly what is there and what is not there, we don't want it. And so we, want, we don't want to, because when you, people do that, they get involved in that, you can go to one extreme or another. You can totally flip passages on their head and misdirect them. And so uh, because of that, we are going to continue to uh, peel back layers of understanding. And what I want to do to kick off today is I want to take you to the second epistle to Peter, or Peter's second epistle, I should just say. And he goes through this passage in chapter 2 that literally echoes exactly what is being conveyed here. And, and, and again, by going to this passage, we're going to have some perspective. We're going to gain some perspective of what is actually being communicated. And so I want to take you there. And we're going to begin right in verse 1. And this is what we read. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be. Now I want to stop. There will be false teachers. Not maybe. There will be false teachers among you. Think about this. They're, among you, this is in the inner sanctum of the community, the ecclesia, of the church. This is it. And I, you look at that, and this is terrifying. And Peter knows this is coming. He knows this is imminent. They're going to come into the inner sanctum of the body of the Messiah. And what are they going to do? Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is what they're going to do. Notice these heresies that are coming in, it's covert. It's not open. People are not sounding the shofar. They're not sounding the alarms. It's secret. And what does that tell you? It tells you it's going to take rut. These heresies, things that take you away from the word of God, from his commandments, from his truth, they're going to come in and they're going to start being accepted in the church. Peter warns of this. Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, there's more that I want to share here. But before we do that, I want to take you to the epistle of Jude. And the reason I want to take you there for those of you who are, consider yourselves avid scholars and students of the word, you know what I'm about to say. Second Peter and the epistle of Jude 
They're really a mere reflection of one another. In essence, uh, to a degree, if you have read 2 Peter, I can tell you, you know the contents of Jude. If you've read Jude, in essence, you have read 2 Peter. I mean, it's almost like, I kind of liken it to this. Peter and Jude were sitting at a table having a discussion about the issues of the church, the issues of the day, and what they want to do. And literally, in this discussion, they say, we should each write a letter to our brethren, and we should send it out. It is, it is so close. It's so parallel like that. It was like they were sitting at the same table, and they drafted, each one drafted a letter right there on the spot. I mean, so you, you can go home and you can see this. There's just almost a mere reflection. So they talk of the same things. They use the same terminology, even the same structure. But here's the thing. Jude says something. He's saying, he's conveying exactly what Peter's conveying, but it's the terminology he uses. It's bold. And it reveals something deeper of where Peter is coming from and Peter's intent. So I just want to briefly take you there. And he opens up and he says, certain men have crept in unnoticed. Now, does this sound familiar? Because Peter just said, these certain men would come in who would secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is Judas saying the same thing. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. Nobody's not, they're in the church and nobody's taking note. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. And what do they do? They turn the grace of God into lewdness. So these men that Peter is talking about that are going to be coming in, Jude gives us some insight as to what is really happening. These heresies that we're talking about, Jude tells us no, they're going to be perverting the grace of God. This is what's at him. This is the expense. They're going to be utilizing God's mercy, God's grace. And by doing so, they're going to lead people astray. Now that is a scary thought. That is a scary thought because we all know God's grace is true. Yeshua is that grace. But there's a perversion happening. And that's where the seduction is. And that's how you can get these people who are in the church. That's how you lead them astray. Terrifying. And so he says, who turn the grace of God into lewdness. Oh, and he says the same thing Peter said. And deny the only Lord God and our Lord, the Messiah, Yeshua. Now going back to 2 Peter 2.1. So these false teachers, they're going to secretly bring in destructive heresies. And then he's going to go on and say this. And many, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. I hate that when I read that. I cringe every time I see this. And unfortunately, Peter's not the only one that uses this descriptor of believers. He's not talking about many in the world. Many believers are going to follow the destructive ways. Yeshua in Matthew 7, when he has all those Christians sitting in front of him crying out, Lord, Lord. And what did he, how did he start? He said, in that day, many will say to me. He says many. And I, that, that, that for me is very hard to deal with. Because you start looking around, you start looking at all the believers in Yeshua, you start looking at all the Christians, and as you become more acquainted with all these warnings, in your mind, you're calculating who's staying and who's going to be destroyed. Who is who? Because we know that the church has tares in it. There are wheat and tares in the church. A frightening concept. Now, dropping down a little bit here in 2 Peter for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, I want you to think great swelling words. In other words, their message is profound. 
It, 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 it makes a mark. There's an impact. It's well-received. But Peter is telling us it's total vanity. It's worthless. It's of no value whatsoever. It's complete emptiness. Now listen to this part because this is important. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. How are these false teachers getting in, they're getting into the inner sanctum of the church, how are they taking away awesome believers of Yeshua, how are they taking them out? Right there. They are alluring through the lust of the flesh. In other words, this is what they're doing. They're coming in and they're giving powerful and wonderful messages that do not appeal to the Spirit of God, but to your flesh to your fleshly desires, the things that your flesh wants to hear. This is marketing 101. Tell the people what they want to hear and they will buy it every time. Every single time. It's so terrifying. This is how they're doing it. And there are things, let's be honest, there are things that, you know, as you sit in those chairs, every one of us has struggles. And God forbid a pastor preacher comes up and pats you on the back and tell you, it's okay in your struggles, don't worry about it. God's grace will cover it. And he strengthens the hands that have been hanging limp, that are hanging faint, that are supposed to be there, that are supposed to tremble before God. He lifts them up and tells them you will have peace. Don't worry about that. And so they're stripping them of the godly sorrow, stripping them of the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that they don't embrace that. And so they come in with these messages and they're very persuasive because... Your flesh, that's what your flesh wants to hear. That I don't have to stop doing X, Y, Z. God still loves me. That's too hard. I don't want to do that. So this is what happens. Now, continuing on, listen to what he says here. While they promise them liberty. So they're coming in. They're appealing to your flesh. They're telling you, giving you teachings that tell you it's okay if you don't keep these commandments of God. It's okay if you do this. No harm's going to come to you. They're promising liberty. This is the catapult leading people off the edge of the cliff. Grace, freedom, liberty. You know, I, I think of, I can't help but think of Irenaeus, who was in the second century, living in the days of Marcion who came out, he saw what, what was happening to the faith. And he said, certain men have come on the scene, they have exaggerate the mercy of God, and they say nothing about judgment. They exaggerate the mercy. This is exactly what Peter is dealing with. He's saying, this is, their pro this is the power by which they are working in. This is the persuasion. It's the freedom. It's the grace. I want to take you to Jeremiah just briefly before we finish this. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me and the house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. You know, I prefer other translations. It actually says we are safe. It is okay for us to do this. Now look at what he's saying. Here you have men and women. They're going to the temple to praise the Lord. 
This is not about they're walking away from their faith. No, no, I'm rejoicing in what the Lord has done for me. It's okay. I'm under grace. I have this freedom so I can come to the house. I can worship him even though I am not walking with him. This is terrifying. The things that Peter are telling us, the things that the writer of Hebrews is writing to his own brethren, this is nothing new. That the devil, this persuasiveness of the devil to get them to rest on, well, you know, and when you're a Jew living in the first century, you, you're, you're built upon remembering what God did to your forefathers. He took them out of Egypt, he delivered them, and he gave you this land. And it's with that reality, we have been delivered. We're okay. It doesn't matter if we're doing these things. God has delivered us. We are children of Abraham. Well, and today people say, don't worry. Christ has set you free. And that is the only way to be set free. There's no debate there. But think about how perverse it is to create teachings, utilizing the holy name of Yeshua, the sacrifice that he made, giving his life for us to perpetuate Sin and rebellion and disobedience. God have mercy on our souls. Finishing this out in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Of course they are. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So here are these false prophets and teachers. They come out promising them liberty. And what are they giving them? Bringing them into bondage. The exact opposite thing they think they're getting as they receive these teachings, these lies, these deceptions, they're getting the exact opposite. They're not getting freedom. They're not getting grace. They're not embracing the grace of God. They're rejecting it. Moving on to verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah Yeshua, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Now think about that statement for a second because this is a mere uh, reflection of what the writer of Hebrews said when he said in chapter 6, if it is impossible, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. It's impossible. You can't do it. Listen to what Peter says. They are entangled in them and overcome. He doesn't say they've been set free. They're overcome. The latter end is worse for them than at the beginning. Verse 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to a true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to wallowing in the mire. Now, the writer, Peter, is taking this from Proverbs 26. And what it says is, as a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool return to his folly. Okay, I want you to think, any, how many of you have owned dogs? You know, you've had dogs. One thing I'm pretty certain of, seeing that I've been a dog owner, is dogs vomit. The one thing that I am not okay with, when, and my last animal was a high-maintenance one, and the one thing, and I can remember opening the, getting her, rushing her, you know, doing that, right? And you're like, no, not in the house. My wife hates that. And so she starts doing that, and that alone, you know, I don't work well with that, okay? I'm, I, I just, I'm like, get out of the house, get out of the house, and, and I, I, I won't forget. So she goes out, and she just throws up, and you can see something inside her made her sick. There was something in her making her sick. 
And when she threw up, you could tell it was better. And she was just kind of, oh, you could tell. He's almost like a smiling dog, you know. But then she turned, circled back and was good starting to eat. And I'm like, not on my watch. We do not do that here. I immediately go grab her back. No, you're going in the house. They were, Why? What are you doing? Who does that? And I'm going to tell you, I personally, and you might be different, I can't watch that. I cannot watch a dog eat its vomit. It is the nastiest thing. It makes me want to hurl. Think about the Lord now. And in our sins, as we go back to these sins, how it makes the Lord feel after Yeshua paid the dearest price, and then you're returning to these sins. Imagine next time you see a dog eating its vomit, stop and watch it. And think about, if you can, Stop and watch it and think about this is how God sees us. Where I intervened, I would not let it happen. I don't want it to happen. And you think about sin. Sin gets inside of us. Before we come into the faith of Yeshua, sin is inside of us and it makes us sick. And then through the gospel, you vomit out that which makes you sick. You vomit out the lust. You vomit out the flesh. You vomit out covetousness and idolatry. All this focus on the world, you vomit it out. Your bitterness, your anger, you vomit it out. Your addictions, you vomit. You are to vomit those things out. God forbid we are dogs. A very term that is used throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, to refer to Gentiles. And go back and eat that vomit. And, this is, and again, you know, one of the, one of the tricky ways the enemy works on us to get to accept things he's he twists our perception it's not that bad there's focus on the liberty here don't worry what you're walking in don't worry what you're eating on your plate just look at this liberty and grace over here really in in truth you're not focused on that liberty and grace it's all a distraction so that you can feed on sin it's absolutely demonic all right so as we begin to look at this writing in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 6 and what he is really conveying, this gives us an amazing perception. What's being described here are dogs returning to their vomit. That's what, when, when he says, if they fall away to renew them again, repent, who are we talking? We're talking about the dogs who've returned to their vomit. That's who we're talking about. Now, I want to take this discussion to a whole nother level. I want to peel back another layer of understanding. And the way I want to do this is, I, I, what I want to do is I want to make this, instead of just having this concept, I want to make this tangible. I want to give you a living example where we can see what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. I want to see it in action. I want an actual living example. You know, for, for some of us, the way we learn best is hands-on. You know, don't give me a sheet and tell me that, that tells me how to do it. Just tell me what to do. I let my hands touch it. Let me go through this because that's how we learn better. We get better perspective. We start learning the intricacies of whatever event we're dealing with. I want to do that right now. And I want to give you a living example of this because this is going to give you a much deeper perspective of what the writer is getting at. And how I want to do it is I want to take, I want to take you to the life of King Saul. And there are things about him that you need to know. There are characteristics. There are things that happened to him. There are things that he did. All play in, 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 they all play a part in understanding this context. 
All right, so going to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people. Now, what I want you to recognize first and foremost, Saul, as we call him today, King Saul, Saul was called by God. It was a supernatural calling. Now, what you need to understand is this, as we go through the life of King Saul, there are parallels to every believer's life. And starting with the calling, Every single one of you that confessed Yeshua as the Messiah for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, understand that was a supernatural calling. The gospel went out. Yeshua himself says in John chapter 6, no one can come unto me unless my father who sent me draws him. And how does he draw them? He draws them through the gospel. The father draws people to his son through the gospel message. Okay? It's a supernatural calling. The first thing I want you to recognize, there's a supernatural calling here upon Saul's life. The second thing you need to see is is here, Saul's being called to be anointed as king for a purpose. He's being called to deliver Israel, to save the Lord's people. Now we see this, this actually manifested as we get to chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Now notice, Samuel doesn't say, now I have anointed you with oil. He gives the glory to God. He tells him exactly, it's the Lord who's called for this. The Lord has anointed you king over Israel. And this is a physical anointing with oil. But I want you to understand That didn't end there. Saul received another anointing. And we read this in chapter 10, verse 10. When they came there to the hill, okay, there was a group of prophets to meet Saul. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. See, there was another anointing. And then it was told Samuel that this was going to happen. And Samuel conveys this to to Saul. This is going to happen. It's all part of God's plan to anoint him with the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. And to the degree that he manifests the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins prophesying. In fact, it was so jarring to the people of the day, there's actually a proverb that went out and that said, is Saul among the prophets? Because people were astounded he was actually prophesying through power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. We look at these believers being talked about in Hebrews chapter 6, Right? And these are awesome believers. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God. Saul fits all of these. This is Saul. This is the life of Saul. He has this special anointing, all right? He has a relationship with the living God. There's intimacy. This is authentic. It's not fake. It's not a sham. It's not a game. Now, problems come in as things begin to develop in Saul's life, as adversity hits. As you jump ahead to chapter 13 in 1 Samuel, 
The police team, they're mounting, they're amassing. The Philistines are amassing their armies for war against Israel. And it's interesting, the Bible actually utilizes the text that they were as the sand which is by the sea. In other words, they were innumerable. You couldn't even count the people. They were that intimidating. This is what is coming. And Saul sees this and he, you know, he's in Gilgal and he's waiting. He's looking at this situation. He feels he's going to die. And if that isn't bad enough, think about being in King Saul's position. Seeing the greatest, probably the greatest army he had ever seen in his life amass against him to come to kill him, to gut him, to gut the, the people of Israel. And then you look at your own brethren and what are they doing? They're running for their life. They're literally hiding. The text says that they're hiding in caves and holes in the earth and, cave and, and rocks. They're totally, they're disbanding from him. So he's looking at this massive army. Everyone around him is fleeing from him. This is terrible. The, the weight of fear is bearing down on him now. You can feel he's being pressured. I mean, you can feel the pressure as you go through the story. If that weren't enough, on top of that, Samuel, he commanded Saul do nothing until I come to you, okay? When I come to you, I will sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, and I will tell you what to do. Well, Saul's looking around. He's looking at the army. Everyone's leaving him. As the situation's precarious, and Samuel is nowhere to be found. Samuel told me he would come to me in the appointed day, and he's not here. So what does Saul do? He offers the sacrifice without Samuel being there. Well, how did that go? Well, as we go to verse 11, we read this. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmas, uh, verse 12, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgah, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled I felt, the last two words you'll ever speak, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. How many times, this is, I'm gonna tell you straight up, no other story in scripture has put more of the fear of God into me than this one. Not even close. Nothing has caused me to tremble more. Nothing has put me on my knees more than this story. It is frightening. How many of you have made decisions when you felt the pressure and you were feeling the heat of that and you went with the dictates of your own heart rather than with the word of God, rather than with his commandments? That's what Saul just did. He felt it. Now think about this. It gets far more, it's far more deceptive than just trying to you know, go through this story and read these words on a page. You need to put yourself in this context where he was. What did he do? He offered an offering to God to honor God. This is what he was doing. And it would seem very right to do in his position. Do you understand this? But the only way you would know it's not is he had to compromise the commandment of God to make that happen. That's the frightening thing about it. How often are we justifying our actions, but unwilling to recognize we did it at the expense of God's commandments. This is going to get more terrifying as we continue. Verse 13, 
And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And so as we look at verse 13, and we're going to continue in a second here, but Saul rebukes him and he specifically goes after the notion of you have not kept his commandment. You have not done this, all right? Now, as we continue, jumping into chapter 15, Saul's going to be given another commandment. And that commandment is this. Saul, you need to go and destroy the Amalekites. You need to destroy everything. And and God is very explicit in what he is supposed to do. He's not just supposed to destroy the Amalekites themselves. All the animals are to be destroyed. Every single last one of them, all right? Very explicit commandment. So now, jumping ahead to chapter 15, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret. Now I want to stop here. The fact that this is the Lord speaking to Samuel, that he greatly regret that he has set up Saul as king. One of the first times we actually see this word used in the Bible is in Genesis 6. And there, you know, it says is sorry. The word is translated typically as sorry, as in, and I am sorry that I have made man on the earth. See, when the Lord is sorry, when he regrets, what comes next? Judgment. Total destruction, where you cut off from him. And here, this is, the, I don't need to read the rest of the story, I know how this is going to end. Because of what the Lord says. I greatly regret, Nacham in the Hebrew, he regrets, he is sorry that he has set up Saul as king. Now why? He has turned back from following me. See, when Yeshua calls us into the kingdom, follow me. I love that call to disciples. Come and follow me. That means leave everything else. You look at me. Everything I tell you, that's what you do, no matter what else is going on. And so here he turned back, the Lord rebukes, uh, the Lord's telling Samuel that he's upset with Saul, and he's turned back from following him, and he has not performed my commandments. So when you understand, what does it mean to turn your back on God? And we've talked about it multiple times in this series. It means you stop keeping his commandments. You know, people get irritated with me because I like to talk about the commandments of God all the time. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to meditate on it. We're supposed to talk to them when we sit in the house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. It's supposed to permeate out of our cells of our body, come forth from our mouth. This is what is supposed to happen. So Saul has not kept his commandments. It grieved Shemuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. This is the other thing I want you to see. You've got to see the context here. And this is why it's so frightening and painful to read. One of the greatest prophets that have ever lived is mourning. He loves Saul. This is why I I grapple with this, and this is why this story has absolutely stripped layers of filth off of me. Because then I think about how many Christians do we know that we are so close to, that we love, that are we going to fall to our knees mourning because they have rejected the Lord and the Lord has rejected them? A scarier, scarier version? How many people do you know that are going to falter and then are weeping for you? Because you have turned your back on God. I think about that and I, it's so heavy. This is so heavy. And you, so you start to see this. So moving on to verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, 
Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Most terrifying part of the story right here. God is regretting ever setting him up, ever bringing him into his kingdom to save his people. In his mind, you're anathema to me. And Saul is rejoicing in the Lord. He is rejoicing before one of the most godly men that have ever lived. He's excited to meet him because in Saul's mind, I have kept the commandment of the Lord. And all I can hear is the echoes in Matthew 7 of all those who go cry out to Yeshua saying, Lord, Lord, don't you know us? We cast out demons. We did money, mighty works in your name. We prophesied. Let us in. What is going on here? Saul is of that very nature. He is overjoyed. Talk about delusion. He has no idea. He's honoring the Lord. He literally thinks, me and the Lord are okay. We're walking with one another. I have paid his name homage. Absolutely terrifying. Well, how does Samuel respond? But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? Really, Saul? You, you've kept the commandment of the Lord. Why am I hearing the lowing of oxen? They're supposed to be dead. The commandment was to kill all of them. Well, this gets crazier as we can listen to how Saul. Okay, so Samuel rebukes Saul for breaking the commandment of God. How does Saul respond? We read this in 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. What? to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. Samuel, you don't understand. We have done more than honor the Lord. We spared the best. We want to honor him. We want to pay some, our God gave us victory. He deserves our best, does he not? So we gave the best of what we had. You, you see, see, this is where you fall into that deception. I'm going to honor God with everything I got but it's according to your own heart. It's at the expense of his word. It's at the expense of God's commandments. Moving on to verse 16, how does this go over? Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. He interrupts him. And you look at this, it's, it's, it, there's an interruption here. He shuts him, cuts him off. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, well, speak on. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now, this is an amazing thing because Samuel's reminding him of his calling, his holy calling, and what he was supposed to be doing for the people of Israel and what he had done for him. Verse 18, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And verse 20, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. You cannot make this up. Twice he comes and rebukes Saul and he will not receive it. Why? Because he has obeyed the voice of the Lord. They're debating. He's debating with the prophet Samuel. You don't understand Samuel. See, you're not getting it. I have honored the Lord with everything. And then he goes on. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Ah, 
But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have utterly been destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So this made perfect sense. He is justifying. Saul has come out to justify his position. His rationale, it seems right. Don't you understand, Samuel? I'm honoring the living God. So Samuel says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now you think about that. You think about what is being said here. To obey is better than for you to follow the Lord in a way you see fit. We just miss what God is asking. Just submit. Just do what I say. And if you're parents out there, my goodness, if you ever had a kid and you, you tell them to do something, you want them to do what you ask them to do. But if they come back and say, well, I did this, this, and this, but I didn't do, actually do that. But they're proud because they, they went through all the work. And this happens, right? This happens. You're like, no, I didn't ask you to do it. I asked you to take out the garbage and you went and cleaned the garage. That is not what I asked. That's wonderful that you did that. Great. But you did not do what I asked you. All God wants from us is simply to obey his voice. And it is so hard because we have a better way. We have a better way in our hearts. Our flesh will tell you. And then he goes on and says this, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is an iniquity and idolatry. What a frightening statement. When you serve God in a manner you see fit, at the expense of the commandment of God, you're compared to a witch, the arch enemy of of Yeshua. An arch enemy. You're compared to those that actually worship false gods. That's who you are when you go into rebellion. See, but Satan doesn't want you to see that. He'll paint a different perspective. He'll paint the, the beautiful love and grace and mercy. Just keep looking at it. It's fine. Don't worry about that. He doesn't really care about these things. Did God really say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I mean, this is a lie from the pit of hell. And there are various lies that the enemy tells you individually in your life on a day-to-day basis, trying to get you to succumb to compromise your faith. Because, he goes on and says this, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Note this, it is a promise. This is a promise. You reject God's word, he is going to reject you. You can profess your faith in Christ till the cows come home. If you do not do what Yeshua says, you are not his disciple. It's that simple. This is a promise. Moving on to verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, finally. He's been rebuked multiple times, wouldn't come down. Samuel won this one. I sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Horizontal faith. See, he stopped looking down at the word of God, which you vertically need to look down and straight up. You're looking, if I'm not looking down at the word, I need to be looking up at Yeshua. That's the faith. I need to be having my eyes set on the kingdom of the living God, of what's coming. But Saul went here. He felt again the pressure pounding down upon him. The pressure of the people that came out said, no, Saul, no, no, we're not going to kill him. We have a better way. We need to sacrifice the best. Let us honor our God. Did not our God give us victory? 
I mean, you could just almost hear the discussions happening. Our God gave us victory. How is it that we're not going to sacrifice to him? Does he not love these things? You see the deception? This is where they're at. Saul feared the people. And I'm going to tell you right now, I would say, I mean, you could talk about the lust of the flesh. You could talk about various sins that lead you astray. Fear is one of the greatest fear in, in discourse and in, 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 in discouragement. These things, they almost like go hand in hand. The devil utilizes them. He sows fear into us and is so powerful of a weapon for him to get you to compromise what you're supposed to do, to get you to not speak up when you're supposed to tell somebody about Yeshua. He puts fear in you. You're worried about what they're going to think. And that's a reality. And now when you got this living in this sick, twisted, perverted generation that we're living in, no one wants to say anything. The Christians have been put in the closet and no one wants to say anything because it might be offensive. Someone might be offended and it might be an altercation. Fear. Fear should not control the gospel. Fear does not, is not supposed to do it. Uh, If fear is controlling you, Yeshua is not in you. He who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. If Yeshua is living in us, we will not fall. We will not cater to these things. We will rise up. This is a reality. Moving on to verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return to me. I want to stop because this is important. You see how Saul reacts. Uh, Don't think for a moment that he's all repentant. The one he is asking forgiveness from is not God. It is Samuel. Do you recognize this? This is imperative to understand the whole context of what's going on. He says to Samuel, please pardon my sin. Saul doesn't drop to his knees and God, the God of Israel, the God of my fathers, have mercy on my soul. I have sinned against you. And there was a brokenness. No, 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 no. Saul doesn't say that. Please pardon my sin. He's speaking to Samuel. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. You think about that. You see what happens when Saul rejects the Lord, the Lord rejected him. It is over. And get this, he never saw him to the day of his death. Exactly what Samuel agreed to do. He never saw him, he never spoke to him. And even worse, the Lord never spoke to Saul from this point forward. He never heard a word. And this is why we covered a couple weeks ago, Saul had to go to a witch to try to hear from Samuel. Not from God, per se, but from Samuel. And this is absolutely crazy. The Lord rejected him. And so you see a pattern in Saul's life. Over and over again, there is a pattern. A dog returning to its vomit. A dog returning, a guy that's compromising the faith. A guy that's compromising the commandments of God over and over again. This is Saul. And so when we look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 6, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they were a partaker of the Holy Spirit, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Welcome to King Saul, the life of it. Now you get to see something and taste it. See what it looks like. The fears that were involved, the pressure that was put upon him. If we, and I'm, this, is, this is the honest truth, if we cannot handle the pressure, you will compromise. 
and you have only one expectation. Hebrews 6. This is a reality. One last thing to note about Saul, and just and I mentioned this in the last message. God took his mercy from him. Saul lost his salvation. And that, that is imperative for us to know. And we see this in 2 Samuel. The Lord speaks to David. He says, but my mercy shall not depart from Solomon as I took it from Saul, which I removed from before you. Saul died in his sin. He will not be saved. The mercy of God was stripped from him. But Saul, and what's so scary is when you look at this passage in Hebrews 6, Saul was this guy. He began to walk with God. He began to walk with him. There was an intimacy and the power of God moved through him. Holy Spirit was on him. And you think about this. That's why this passage is so difficult. How is it the power of God can move through someone like this and him to end up like that? How does that happen? You better understand something. It can happen to you. There's a reason this story is recorded in the word. And so when we look at Hebrews 6, 4, this is something you need to take seriously. Now, that being said, I want to peel back another layer, a whole other layer of understanding and really address the looming question that really hits us in the face. The first time you read this, it hits you. And you think, is the writer really saying what I think he is saying? Is this writer telling me that after I accept Yeshua as Lord and I've been a partaker of the Holy Spirit, I've been sealed, suffragase in the Greek, I have the seal proof of my inheritance, that if I fall away, that means if I sin and if I stumble, there's no hope for me, I can't return? Is that what this writer is saying? Well, let me answer that. You might not like it. It depends. You might say, depends on what? It depends on you. It depends on whether or not you are going to choose to live a life like King Saul or whether you're going to live a life like King David. I want to tell you something. When we look at this passage, you understand this in its deepest context? Put the lives, these two figures, the life of King Saul up next to the life of King David, side by side, to ensure that you understand that you fully appreciate what's being said here. And why do I say that? I say that because King Saul was supernaturally called by God. Isn't that interesting? King David called by God. Saul was anointed as king over Israel. Interesting. King David anointed as king over Israel. Well, Saul had more than that. Saul was anointed with the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit came out and he prophesied. Ah, King David too was anointed with the Holy Spirit and he too prophesied. And one last one is very vital. After all these things, King Saul possessed the calling, the anointing as king, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the prophesying. After that, he fell. He stumbled. He sinned. Huh, isn't that interesting? Because that's David's testimony. After he was anointed, after these things, he fell. You look at their bios in this context, they are virtually identical, side by side. And yet, Saul is eternally lost and David is eternally redeemed. How is that possible? I want you to think about how is that possible? What did David do 
to merit that? What did he do to get that eternal redemption? And Saul didn't. He was rejected. What did David have? The answer to that is David had heart. See, it becomes a true matter of the heart of this this undying love for the Lord God. See, when Saul sinned, you saw how he responded. He tried to justify. I'm justifying my position. It makes sense why I'm doing this. I'm going to tell you this. And, and, And that was the prophet Samuel. He came to him and rebuked him. When the prophet Nathan came to David, he broke. Immediately broke and fell to his knees. The weight of his sin was too much to bear. He couldn't handle it. He was devastated that he had betrayed his God, a God who gave him favor, a God who anointed him, a God who was his closest confidant. And he betrayed that trust and he couldn't handle it. See, Saul's response to rebuke, night and day to David's. Nothing, nothing even comparable. I want to share with you a passage so that you can feel the weight and why David was eternally redeemed. Because we need to understand this. If we're, if, 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 if we're not like David, that means you're Saul. And so, Psalm 38, verse 4. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. He can't handle it. There's no, there's no break for him. He cannot handle this. I am bowed down greatly. I'm mourning all day long. For my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Total brokenness. I mean, you don't see this with Saul. He didn't have the, do you understand the effect that sin had on David's heart? See, he didn't brush it off saying this is, oh, you know what? Grace will cover it. It's fine. Insulting the spirit of grace. No, David could not handle it. He could not lift his head. See, this is what God is looking for. That brokenness to feel that pain, to feel the cost that was paid at the cross. I want to take you to Jeremiah 8.12 for a moment. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall in the time of their punishment. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. See, this is what's scary. Saul didn't know how to blush. This is what's scary about this generation, not the world of the church. They don't know how to blush. Anyone who commits sin, it's just, it's like nothing. It doesn't matter because we always have this button of grace over here. There's no brokenness. If, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. If you are in sin right now, if you are dealing with addictions and you are not broken before the Lord, I'm telling you, you are lost. You need to repent. You need to feel that brokenness. You need to ask for repentance. You need to do what David did. He cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Purge this filth out of me. And do not take your presence from me. And I think about, what was David concerned about? David was not concerned about justifying the way he thought God should be worshipped or justifying his sin in any way, saying, well, it really wasn't my fault. She was walking around naked. 
He wasn't doing this. I mean, it's unbelievable how people justify their sins. No, he was broken. And this is, this is he gives us a secret here. I want to take you to Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. See, you remember in, in Joshua early on, Achan, uh, when Israel's going to battle against I, Achan had hid all the tr- things that he coveted, things that were forbidden from him from taking. He hid them. He hid his sin and Israel started to fall. They started to be destroyed. That's a lie. And this is what Satan gets us to do. He gets us to cover our sins, oh, not think about it. I'm not going to think, I know I did that, but I'm not even going to think about it. There's no, embrace that godly sorrow. We need that. We need to be driven to our knees. We need to fall and we need to weep and wail over the fact that we have failed and betrayed our king. This is what we need to do. So David says, I have not hidden it. And then he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So this is where John gets it from when he says in 1 John 1, uh, if we sin, he is faith- if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess. We need that confession. Do you understand the success of David, of truly having that broken heart that's leading him in repentance? That success hinges upon the confession, I have sinned. I have wronged you. God have mercy. Now, if you think you're going to do that just by simply, oh, I'll confess the sin and then I'll just push the grace button all the time. Sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent. That is not a broken heart. That's not a heart of repentance. Remember, Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's was rejected. It was a matter of the heart. He does not accept the sacrifice of the wicked, right? Proverbs 15. Now look at the effects of confessing the sin. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, let's talk about David's sin. The most egregious sin you can commit in Torah. One punishable by death getting involved in adultery, and that sin metastasized because lawlessness, as Paul says in Romans 6, leads to more lawlessness. And what did he end up doing? Murder. End up committing murder to the point he has to ask for forgiveness of bloodshed. These are David's sins, the most horrific sins you can imagine. And yet, David is forgiven. He was forgiven this. That's the power of the blood of Yeshua. There is hope for us. Amen. Now, continuing on. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. And you want to pick up on that statement, when you may be found. Because he's not going to hang around forever. And we know this because of scripture. Now, what does Yeshua say to the church at Thyatira in Revelation? I gave her time to repent and she did not repent. And then he goes on, therefore, I'm going to kill her children. I mean, this is a frightening thing. See, the Lord does stand at the door and knock. He gives us a time to repent. And we can, Isaiah 55 says the same thing. See, there's a time where he's, not, he's longing for us. But you keep going on in your sins, keep going on in your sins, keep rejecting him. When you forsake it, he will forsake you. Does anyone want to test that time limit? God, have mercy, no. Absolutely not. So for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely a flood of great waters, uh, they shall not come near him. You know, I, I think of this, the passage most of us know by heart. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are what? Called by my name. 
Interesting, because Saul was called, but so was David. My people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves. What did David do? The opposite of Saul, he humbled themselves. If they will pray, what does he say here? David says, everyone who is godly shall pray to you for the purpose of forgiveness. If they will pray, if they will seek my face, David says in Psalm 27, Lord, you said seek your face, your face I will seek. And the Second Chronicles 7.14 goes on and says, and turn from their wicked ways, turn from their wicked ways, don't go back, a dog to its vomit, then I will hear in heaven. Yes, when you look at Hebrews 6, there is hope. There is forgiveness. But you better know the difference between the life of King David and the life of King Saul. One last thing I want to mention in regard to King David. Do you want to see what repentance looks like? This is what's accredited to David. This is how David is being remembered in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. The Lord says, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and listen to this, and had not turned aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Do you have that testimony? I mean, his testimony is he didn't turn to the left or the right in anything except that sin. That's what repentance looks like. He didn't just keep going on and sinning. I mean, this is, let this message, I'm begging you, let it sink in. Do not allow anyone to sever godly sorrow in your heart. That conviction, let it bring you down to the depths of your knees and let the Holy Spirit begin to regenerate you, purging that iniquity, all those lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life, get it out. The addictions that you're dealing with, if, if, if the devil is telling you, you're in a state of grace, you are deceived. You are deceived. You've got to get out now. There is hope for a broken heart, for true repentance. Yeshua will forgive your sins. 